Well, it dawned on me as I was preparing for this message, studying the first chapter of Malachi. If you'd like to open your Bibles there to Malachi chapter 1, you go to the Gospel of Matthew and then go back a book, you'll find the little book of Malachi. It dawned on me as I was preparing that you will never find the verses we're going to be dealing with today on Christian wall art. <coughs> you will not see them in a devotional calendar. You're not going to find them on a coffee cup, a bumper sticker, or a motivational meme. These are the sorts of verses that make congregants squirm. These are the sorts of verses that inspire preachers to preach topical sermons so we can avoid them. So hopefully that is enough of a teaser for you this morning to have you sitting up straight, <coughs> eager to hear the word of the Lord. We are in the very beginning of Malachi chapter 1. The prophet begins his oracle with a declaration that challenges a sad and a common perception of God in the land as ambivalent and uncaring. The word of the Lord to his people is, I have loved you. Why does he have to say this? Because 80 years or so after returning from the Babylonian captivity, the nation is still a shambles. Population-wise, it is small and it is weak. It is despised by its neighbors. It is still a Persian province. Yes, the temple has been rebuilt, but in terms of opulence and grandeur, it pales in comparison to its former version. The walls of Jerusalem had been repaired and restored, but the city itself was still largely wrecked. And all the promises of restoration and prosperity and blessing, they seem to most to have been empty words. They have not arrived. Life in Judah is filled with hardships. Surely God must not care very much for his people if he's going to let them live like this. That's what they're thinking anyway, until God through Malachi jolts them awake with a powerful statement of truth. I have loved you, says the Lord. This love that he speaks of is both historic and current. Commentator John McKay explains the language, writing the Hebrew means something like this. I have loved you in the past and I still do. Now, if a husband were to say to his wife, I love you, and she had to ask how or in what ways. That would indicate a pretty seriously strained relationship, don't you think? And so it is the case here between the Lord and the people of Judah. God professes his covenant love and the response from the people comes back. How have you loved us? What they say betrays what they really believe. What comes from our lips reveals what's in our hearts. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. How have you loved us? If you're reading from the King James Version this morning, your Bible says, wherein? Wherein hast thou loved us? In what? How? When? This is their reply. And we can consider their challenges might be punctuated not only with question marks, but also with exclamation points. What are you talking about, God? 
How could that possibly be? Where is the proof of such a claim? In answering, we might expect God then to provide a quick history lesson to just rattle off a litany of proofs of his love. He could have gone back to the founding of the nation by his sovereign choice of Abraham and the covenant that he made with Abraham back then. Or to Moses and the, the Lord's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He could have referenced the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the wilderness wanderings, that whole cloud by day, pillar of fire by night thing. He could have mentioned that. The provision of manna and quail or shoes that don't wear out in a 40-year journey. He could have cited all of that. He, he could have called to their attention the exploits of Joshua, the conquests of the mighty and blessed King David, he, he could have mentioned the wealth and the relative peace of the Solomonic era. I, I could go on and on and on reciting evidences of God's love toward little Israel throughout her existence. And God could have done the very same thing. But that is not how he chose to answer. He answers in a curious way. If you're reading along, verse 2, is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, and then into verse 3, but Esau I have hated. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. On its face, this is a difficult saying for several reasons. To Western ears, it's difficult because we hear the words love or hate and almost automatically associate them with intense feelings, which in their use here would only tell part of the story. Further, to those who have been fed a steady diet of the God of grace without any teaching of God's wrath. This is hard to comprehend. If God is love, is he also capable of hate? The answer is yes. And lastly, the Lord's loving one brother and not another just seems unfair. And in a few minutes, I hope you'll see why you don't really want God to be fair. But in the meantime, our task this morning is to see if we can discern what God is saying in these words through Malachi, the argument he's making, how it would have been heard by those original hearers, and also what implications there might be in it for us, his church today. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. We're going to look at this statement from God on three levels as it relates to the brothers, to their descendants, and finally, to the church. So first, let's look at the direct allusion to Esau and Jacob. We read about these men in the book of Genesis. God answers the question posed to him of, by the people with a question. They said, how have you loved us? So he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? The answer is yes. Jacob and Esau are brothers, and more than that, they are twins. They're not identical twins. Esau is the older of the two. He's red-haired. He's ruddy. Jacob is the younger. Esau grows up to be a hunter, an outdoorsman, a man's man of sorts, if you will. Jacob, it seems, is more of a homebody. He's a, he's a dweller in tents. He's probably a, a good helper to his mother around the house. Esau would bring game uh, home to Isaac, and he was favored by his father as the eldest often was in those days. Jacob was clearly the favorite of his mother. But the bottom line here is that they're twin brothers. Same mom, same dad, same birthday. Before they were born, God had declared 
that contrary to the traditions of Israel, Esau, the elder, would serve Jacob, the younger. God determined, we find in Genesis 25, 23, and then the Apostle Paul explains it again in Romans 9, the scripture Justin read, just read for us, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Esau is going to serve Jacob. God ordained, before they were born, that Jacob would cut in line, and take the position of prominence in the family. God chose Jacob over Esau. That is the plain meaning of the text. Now, why would he do that? Well, if you know anything about Esau, as he's revealed in the Bible, you would know that he's a pretty impulsive guy. He has a bad temper. He had little regard for convention. He married women his parents didn't approve of. He even sold his birthright for a bowl of stew one day because he was hungry. So you might be thinking, well, of course God chose Jacob. Esau wasn't a nice guy. God, in choosing Jacob, must have looked into the future and seen what kind of a mean man Esau was going to be. And so he chose a more fitting man to live in covenant with him. But if you know anything about Jacob... You wouldn't be able to say that he was a more fitting man, not with a straight face anyway. Because from the beginning, Jacob, literally out of the womb, was a heel grabber. He latched onto people for what they could do for him. He was manipulative. He was conniving. With his mother's help, he deceived his blind father Isaac in order to have the paternal blessing that should have been Esau. In ja in Jacob was indeed not a very moral or devout character at all. At least not such that one could say God was justified in choosing him over his brother to bear the name Israel and continue the lineage of God's people. Neither of these brothers from the same mother and father, neither of these twins had in them, listen, neither of them had anything in them that was especially redeeming. But God chose Jacob before Jacob was born, knowing everything about him before he was born. I heard, I heard it said recently that somebody had commented, I know God chose me before I was born because if he chose me based on anything after that, he wouldn't have. You know, I mean, just think about just as he chose you, Christian, before you were born, he chose Jacob. But let's keep this in the moment. God chose Jacob over Esau, not because of any good that was in him or any great works that he would do. God chose him for this reason, and we've got to get this, because it is God's prerogative to choose who he wants. All right? He's God, and he can do what he wants. Beyond that, whatever he does is right because it's not possible for him to do anything wrong. He's God, and it is his prerogative to choose who we want. Almost immediately, in our spirits at least, we want to cry out, that's not fair. That's not fair. He had these two brothers in front of him, and he chose one. He loved one, and he didn't love another. That's not fair. And you know what? You say that, you're right. It's not fair. As we tend to understand fairness at least. 
So I want you to bear with me now because this is not Hallmark Christianity that you're about to hear, okay? <laughs> Our response that God's treatment of Esau is unfair comes from this similar place, catch this, as the response of the Israelites to God's declaration of his love. A sense that we know how God should be. That we are going to judge God. And that is dangerous. Because listen, friend, God will tell us who he is. God will tell us how he will be. God is always right. And we should listen. So in terms of fairness, let me ask you this. What is fairness when it comes to Jacob and Esau? What would be fair treatment of them? If fairness is everyone getting exactly what she or he deserves, then to ask for a God who is completely fair would mean we all would be deservingly subject to the wrath of God and spending eternity in hell paying for our sin. Because that is what our sins, according to the Bible, deserve. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual, eternal separation from God. That is what our sins have earned us. We've all sinned, the Bible tells us. No exceptions. We are all worthy of eternal condemnation. Eternal death and separation from God. So what would be fair... What would be justified, what would be reasonable, what would be right, would be for God not to choose any sinful creature to show mercy on. If we all got what we deserved, if we all got exactly what each of us deserved. So listen, God's choosing to allow Esau to live and die just as he wanted to, which is what he did. It's kind of Romans 1 thing where you just give, give them over. Well, that is fair. And God's choosing of Jacob is not fair. It is merciful. It is merciful. Do you remember what God told Moses about himself? Exodus 33, verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And here it is. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is what God says about himself. I'm going to be gracious to whoever I want to be gracious to, and I'm going to be merciful to whoever I want to be merciful to. You see, grace is when God gives one what is not deserved. Mercy is when God withholds what is deserved. God is merciful, and it is his prerogative to bestow mercy wherever, on whomever, however he sees fit. He's not obligated to treat everyone with the same mercy. He is God. And he can show mercy on whoever he wants. And he can withhold it from whoever he wants. And he'd be perfectly right and just in doing so. God loved Jacob because God is merciful. So that is the first level of consideration in understanding this passage. The answer to the question, how have you loved us, is this. I chose Jacob. But that is not all. The second level of understanding requires us to zoom out from these literal players, Jacob and Esau, to who they represent. And Malachi clearly has this in mind as he delivers this oracle of God. You see, when the Lord references Jacob, he's not just talking about the person Jacob, not solely talking about the patriarch. He's also speaking of Jacob's descendants. Jacob was renamed, do you remember what he was renamed? Israel. God is speaking to Israel. 
To say, Jacob, I have loved, is a reiteration of the statement that God started with. I have loved you. I have loved you, Israel. And when God speaks of Esau, it's clear from this passage that he means more than the bitter brother of Jacob. In verse 3, he speaks of the country and heritage. In verse 4, he properly shifts from Esau to Edom. Edom is a kingdom that was founded by Esau. The Edomites are Esau's descendants. So God continues here to draw a contrast. He chose Jacob, and by extension, he chose the descendants of Jacob, Israel. He did not choose Esau, and by extension, his favor would not rest on the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. He chose Jacob. He put his favor on Jacob. The problem for the residents of Judah, though, Jacob's descendants, is that they weren't feeling especially favored. That was, that was the issue in Malachi's day. Professor, or one of the issues, we're going to see many. Professor and scholar John McKay writes this, they had lost any sense of wonder of what God had done for them. It was not just a matter of remembering what had happened in the days of Moses. They had not grasped what had been given them in the return from Babylon and the rebuilding of the temple. They could not see what they already had. All they knew was that they did not have all they wanted. And unfortunately, what they wanted was defined in increasingly worldly terms. Let that sink in a little bit. These people have an issue with God because they did not have all they wanted. This is the sort of mindset that roused the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, to say, man, by nature, is a lump of ingratitude. Man, by nature, is a lump of ingratitude. He goes on. He's often ungrateful even to his earthly friend. He's invariably ungrateful to his best friend above until the grace of God has changed his heart. Leave him alone, and though he may be loaded with mercy, yet he will never bless the hand that gives him the favor. Should he even be allowed to survive so long as a hundred years unless the Holy Spirit shall deal with him, he will not once remember his God in grateful thankfulness, but he will go on from the beginning to the end of the century, always receiving but never rendering back to the Lord anything like gratitude. We often say that ingratitude is one of the worst sins, and we feel it so when it concerns ourselves, but we quite forget that it must be worse toward God than it is toward us. For after all, whatever we may do for others, we're only like stepfathers to the blessings we bestow. For every good gift comes directly from the great father of lights, even from God himself. We may be the channels conveying comfort to others, but the blessing itself comes from him. Shameful then it is that all good should come from God, and yet that man should be ungrateful to him who is the great source of it all. The charge of ingratitude can be made against us all as we are by nature. It is not merely of some base, mean, groveling spirits that we're now speaking, but of mankind as a whole, looking at it on a broad scale. Man is a lump of ingratitude. The Israelites had lost their sense of wonder at what God had done for them. Instead, they were focusing really on their wants, and they were focusing on their lack. Commentator Peter Adam cautions us about this. He says, if we assess God's love by how he meets our needs, then our greedy hearts will always find him wanting. If we assess God's love by his mercy in saving us from the death, judgment, and hell that we by nature and by actions deserve, then we will constantly marvel at his amazing love and amazing grace. 
So two quick takeaways for us here. First, Christian, let us regularly practice thanksgiving. Okay, let us be grateful for all that we have. Let us see it as coming from the hand of God. Second, let us be careful to assess God's love and mercy for us in the fact of our salvation as opposed to any particular situation. Let us assess God's love for us in the fact of our salvation versus any particular situation. Because it very well may be that the Lord is not meeting our temporary needs right now the way that we want him to. The way that we wish he would. But we cannot deduce from that that he doesn't love us when he has gone to such great lengths to meet our greatest need of being saved, of being spared from the wrath that we deserve. You and I can get caught up, can't we, in the immediate, in the here, and in the now. But you've got you to remember, the Lord's perspective is eternal. He sees this big picture that you and I can't see. But he shares a little bit, a bit of it here in Malachi's oracle. Speaking of Esau, Malachi 1, verse 3, God says, I have laid waste his hill country and have left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So let me share a little bit of history from scholars Ian Dugwin and Matthew Harmon. They write this, while Israel was rebuilding ever so slowly, Edom was coming undone. On the eve of the return of Jews to Jerusalem, the last Babylonian king, Nabonidus, was campaigning in the previously secure area of Eden to acquire trade routes to the Red Sea. Edom's final demise would come later at the hands of a coalition of semi-nomadic Arab tribes. By the mid-third century, the Nabataean Arabs had completely displaced the Edomites from their ancestral territory. So it hasn't occurred yet, but this is what God's eyes see. And this is a done deal. Edom and the Edomites, the descendants of, Jacob, of, of Esau, will soon enough be no more. They're going to cease to exist. If in their impending calamity, Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, which is, is the same thing that Israel is doing, right? Shattered, taken away into Babylonian captivity, brought back and rebuilding the ruins. If Eden says the same thing in their calamity, the Lord of hosts says, well, they might build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom doesn't stand a chance. Edom doesn't stand a chance because the Lord of hosts, which is a title that reflects the military image of the Lord with his heavenly armies, and you'll see it many times in the book of Malachi, the Lord of hosts is going to see to their demise. He's going to bring judgment to Edom. He's going to bring judgment to the Edomites. They're going to cease to exist. And guess what? Israel, his chosen, will remain. Not because Jacob merited better treatment than Esau. Not that Israel was that much more moral than Edom. But simply this, catch this. God had decided to set his favor on an undeserving nation and to continue his covenant love to those people. Edom will be forever known as the wicked country and as Zechariah prophesied, Israel will be the holy land. Edom will be destroyed, Israel will be preserved. Edom will be the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Israel will be the one through whom, as God promised Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The one through whom the Messiah comes. 
this is where we fit in. So Tell you read this Old Testament stuff. He goes, where's the New Testament app? Here's where, where the church fits in. Because we Christians, whether we've thought about it this way or not, we ought to, Romans 9 encourages us to, we Christians are the beneficiaries of God's preserving covenant love to Jacob, to Israel, through whom Christ came to bring salvation to the world. As we've just seen in our study through Acts, to the Gentiles, to the people of every tribe, in every tongue, and every nation, beyond the borders of Israel, right? In Christ, for those who trust in Him, the promise of eternal salvation has come. It has come through Israel, and it's going further than to Israel. The sons and the daughters of God will no longer be a designation that is relegated to nationality or to ethnicity. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 9. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The gospel uh, writer John put it this way. He noted that when Jesus came to this earth, many did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, he gave them the power to become the children of God. Of God's translation here of all this stuff, you and I are direct beneficiaries of God's merciful covenant love expressed to Jacob. He loved Jacob. He chose Jacob. And if you are a believer here this morning, he loves you. And he has chosen you. Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen to this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Perhaps you have not really considered yourself, considered yourself as chosen by God. Or perhaps you should be praying that you are chosen of God. I think sometimes we get this backwards. I think there are people who, who live life in such a way that they think, well, maybe later on, when I get done doing what I want to do, well, then I will choose God. When in fact, we ought to be like blind beggars on the side of the road, crying out to God, Son of David, have mercy on me. We ought not to be thinking that maybe at some point I will choose God, but we ought to be praying with all of our hearts that, Lord, let me be chosen. And we pray for our children. We pray the same thing, don't we? Let them be the elect. Perhaps you've not really considered yourself chosen by God. You haven't appreciated fully his hand in calling you to salvation. In, in removing you from the kingdom of darkness and, and placing you in the kingdom of light. But either way, wherever you're at, wherever your mind is, whether you're a believer or you're thinking about being a believer, make no mistake, understand this, it is God who chooses. The hymn writer, in that hymn we've sung many times, he lifted me, the second verse, 
Sneaks a little theology in here on you. He called me long before I heard, before my sinful heart was stirred. But when I took him at his word, forgiven, he lifted me. From sinking sand, he lifted me with tender hand, he lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light, oh praise his name, he lifted me. He called me long before I heard, before my sinful heart was stirred. And he lifts us up to life. And he lifts us because he loves us. And it is that simple. This is, brothers and sisters, the convincing sign of God's love for his people. This is what the people in Malachi say wanted to know. Does, does he love us? This is what we may be asking also, assessing our life situation. Maybe not be satisfying to us. Does he love us? Here is a convincing sign of God's love for his people, for his people all time and everywhere. The sign that he displayed in his electing love to Jacob and to Israel and to us. Here it is that he has not dealt with us according to our sin. That's what it is. That's what it boils down to. But according to mercy. He has, God has in fact not been fair with us. He has been more than fair. He has been merciful. He has been merciful. Because he is merciful. Over time, I have known a few people who, when you ask them how they're doing, will reply, better than I deserve. Christian, could we not answer just the same? When we ponder God and the gracious way that he has dealt with us, not only in material blessings, we look at those things, but much more so in our spiritual inheritance, the forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, the sparing us of the wrath that we deserve. Could we not say the same, how are you, better than I deserve? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, the Apostle Paul writes in the third chapter of the book of Titus, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of God and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, because he has dealt with his son Jesus according to our sins. Because he ordained that his own son would pay the price for our failures and absorb in himself the punishment that was ours. He has not dealt with us according to our sins because he has dealt with us according to Christ's righteousness, which is ours by faith, imputed to us when we say Jesus is Lord. When we say he died for me, he has forgiven me, and he accepted me. Let us 
not doubt the love of God, nor ever lose our sense of wonder at all that we have in him and all that he has done for us. Our gracious God, oh, we can be a forgetful people. And Lord, we do have this tendency to look at what is happening right in the moment and draw so many big conclusions from what ultimately end up being small events. Deliver us from this folly, we pray. Bring us near to the cross. Help us to gaze on our Savior in such a way that we could never doubt his love. Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to be joyful, full of gratitude, remembering not only what you have done for us historically, what you are doing for us right now, and most of all, how it is all motivated by mercy and your great love. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.